All right, so we are in Philemon. And by the way, that missions committee or team or community, we're calling it that because that's just the language everybody knows. But what we're really saying with missions is that the learners and, and the, the brothers and sisters that, that we're really approaching the world, not from a top-down, but from a relational standpoint, uh, going on learning trips, service trips, or trying to be available to God to be used as light um, but missions is just kind of the regular language that we all know. So it's called the missions community, going to be meeting every month. But as we leave every month, uh, and you would have heard this this morning, as we leave every month, we do a local update of an organization here in town that is in need of help, uh, of volunteers. And we present that to people not out of guilt, not that they would just jump at everything and burn themselves out, but that they would know, because that's a little social network right there of 30 plus people, that they would know so that they could respond if God prompted, or as they move out into this city, we can multiply that knowledge of what the needs are as it goes out. So in these meetings that we're going to be doing monthly, it really is a both and um, as we kind of lean heavy into what we can do to minister uh, to those in our world and in our community. Uh, we are in the book of Philemon. might take you a second to find it. So go ahead and start looking, and then I'm going to open us with a word of prayer. Uh, but Philemon, the last of Paul's letters, it's after his letter, uh, letter to Titus, which is uh, on pastoral advice, the letter to Titus, uh, and encouraging a younger pastor on, on, on his ministry. And then the last of the letters, the third shortest book in the New Testament, is this little letter to Philemon. Um, on, on my Bible, it's page 1093, if that helps. 1093. Um, uh, but let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then let's dive in and realize that, that um, the texts of 2,000 years ago, that the scriptures of 2,000 years ago speak to human issues and issues of the heart and things that we grapple with even today. And so let's take this to the Lord. Father, uh, we do humbly come before you and ask um, that you would help us learn, that you would strip away our, our, our prejudices, that you would strip away or spotlight our blind spots that where ego gets involved and where we would try to save face, that you would help us learn that we need to move beyond that if we're, if we're to grow up in our faith. Father, for those of us that are dealing with the harder things, that are dealing with hard words or, or, or being confronted by different things as Philemon is here, help us to realize that this it is not about us. This is about life, and it's about the kingdom, and it's about uh, your community. And that at, at certain times, we're all going to be dealing with challenging situations, and we're all called in faith to respond to that in a Christ-like manner. Help us this morning be open and tender. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm going to jump right into Philemon, um, and, uh, and I'm going to look right at you guys today, and, and, and if there's anything wrong on the screen behind me, it's because my daughter's on the camera, and uh, it'd, be, it'd be some kind of an internal family issue that she's working out that she doesn't even know exists, but we have promised all our kids that we'll pay for counseling um, <laughs> later in life. 
Um, but, uh, but she might be working it out on the camera. Um, Philemon, we're going to jump right past the intro. If you haven't been here the last couple weeks, this is a letter from Paul uh, written towards the end of his life when he's in captivity, probably not in a prison, but in a house that he would have rented being chained to a Roman soldier. So he would be a prisoner in chains, but with some strange degree of like house arrest if you want to picture it that way. Not fully understood or known, but that's the, the broad supposition that he writes this letter to Philemon and then it says others, Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that meets in their home. So this is um, back in the Galatia area. This is back in the Ephesus area. This is a, a church that Paul would be familiar with and, and he's writing to a specific person whose house holds the church, which means he's a prominent individual. He's probably a richer individual or, or certainly a leader or well-known. And he's writing this person a very personal letter. Most of the, of the you's in the English language, you can be singular or it can be all of you. I just did it right there. Did you guys see me? Did anyone catch that? Remember the responsive part? Like you, right? Like I can use you to talk about all of you, or I can say you, Sean Kent, right? Like, you doesn't discriminate between <laughs> sizes of groups, but in the Greek text, it does. And in this letter, when you peel back the layers and you look at the Greek, it's really interesting. The whole letter, by and large, the body text, is talking to um, Philemon, and it's talking to you, Philemon. And but it's doing it in a way that's expecting that other people are listening too. And when it turns to the end of the letter, when it starts talking about um, he's sending you greetings, etc., um, and, and, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, he's now addressing the church as a whole that, that this is a public you all, if you will, right? Good Southern y'all. And, uh, and so you get this really interesting dynamic as Paul writes this little itty bitty letter and he writes it specifically to one person, but knowing that it's going to be a, a letter from an apostle that gets read by others. And it's really interesting. And he kind of tips off his hand after the greetings. Um, Paul, Paul comes in, verse 8, and he says, therefore, although in Christ, in other words, I'm an apostle, I have authority, I could be bold, and I could order, to, uh, order you to do what you ought to do. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It's a really interesting thing here. Let's back up and just look at Paul's life. Paul was a leader of a movement against Christians. He was spearheading the killing, the rounding up of Christians. He has this crazy conversion story. That crazy conversion story means that he's going to lose his whole social network. Everyone that respects him, where he has social clout, all of those people, he's going to lose his whole friend base. He loses his sight in this conversion, and he goes three days being blind, ends up in Damascus, and, and then has to go to the house of a Christian prophet. And in that house, his, his, his sight is restored and his eyes open up. And I had a friend uh, who works with Micah Challenge out of Portland, Jason Folletta. We were talking about this not too long ago, a couple of months ago. And he pointed out something interesting that I'd never really realized before. Why did Jesus blind Paul and then keep him blind until he reaches the house of that enemy group, the, the, the group he was persecuting, 
uh, and then through the ministry of this person, open the eyes of Paul and restore his sight. Why? And it's really interesting. Um, and he supposed, and I kind of agree with him, that, that Paul was restored within the community that he was going to have to minister to. He came in helpless, he came in weak, he came in humble, and had to be ministered to and, and blessed by this community, accepted into this community which God was going to now send him. And that conferred a degree of, of recognition on Paul's part that he now belongs to this community, that this community is his community, and also to those leaders as this humble guy, weak, can't kill anybody. He's obviously not like a secret spy. Like he's, he's not working his way in in some kind of devious way. He comes in weak, and then we, through God's blessing, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have, have now restored this person within our community. It's a fascinating transference that, that Jesus orchestrates here. So Paul loses his whole social network, loses face, is brought into this Christian community. But what's interesting, a couple outliers uh, will embrace him and begin to teach him and, and work with him. But when he goes to the power circles, when he goes to Chicago, where, where you get the, all the power of Christianity or Orange County or whatever it might be, when he goes to the power circles, all of a sudden he, even though he's now an apostle called by Christ, only has a few people that recognize his value and his giftedness and that Jesus has, in some sense, called him or touched him. And, and Barnabas and those few others have to fight their way in to allow Paul to be accepted by this new kind of um, center of Christianity, if you will. So Paul lost face with his old group. He never was fully, really accepted in a... In a in an embrace kind of way with the new group, goes then north to Antioch where he sees a whole different kind of ministry going on. He comes up to Bend, Oregon, goes to Antioch, sees a different kind of ministry and, and in, in many respects a different kind of theology. Not a new theology made up, but a, a biblical rendering of theology in that ancient church of Antioch where Jews and Gentiles are now coming together in the gospel, in the good news that unites them into Christ. And he begins to minister that way and faces persecution again from the, the Jerusalem Christians. So the people like him that are Christians are now persecuting him, crazy stuff. So he goes on missions. Now, this kind of missions journey is like going to, to some crazy places in the world, crazy places where you get stoned, and left for dead or imprisoned where you have to be, be let down in baskets um, or, or kind of like scurried out of the city before, before you're captured and then put to death. These kinds of places, Paul goes to these kinds of places and he's ministering and he's got this young guy, Mark, with him. And Mark bails out. Mark, um, we don't really know why, but it seems like he he didn't finish the task. So that when Paul goes to, to go on his second missionary journey, um, he and his best friend end up falling out and we never really see Paul and his best friend reconciled in scripture. I have to believe that they, that they were somehow, some way. But Paul and Barnabas, we don't see them reconnected in scripture. What we do see 
is later in Paul's life, about the time he's writing Philemon, that when he's writing to people, he's talking about Mark and how Mark is a help and an encouragement to him and, and reach out to Mark, if you will. And you begin to realize that in Paul's journey of intense ministry, where, where Mark became problematic and he cut the relationship, so to speak, um, that now Paul is softened a bit and he's slowed down a bit. He's in chains and he's speaking about the community that he's a part of and Mark is a valuable part of this community. And you see this grace that's there in Paul that was always there theologically, always there as a pastor, but, but now you really see it as an older man Who's, who's welcoming everyone kind of with their faults, forbearing them, and appreciating how God is growing these people up. You see an interesting Paul. And Paul, who in his letters can be so fiery and so adamant about truth and doctrine, and that if anybody says anything different than this, they should be anathema, excommunicated, that this Paul who doesn't mince words is incredibly bold. He comes here to this letter and he kind of tips his hand to that. I could be bold. Um, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. So what, what's going on here? Um, as we continue verse 12, Paul is sending him Onesimus, who is maybe still legally a slave of Philemon. In, in the Roman Empire, 70% of people were slaves. We're talking about a different kind of slavery than what we're used to, to watching on TV. This was a society in the Mediterranean world that was dominated by, by slaves and slave labor. And in the Roman Empire, Onesimus, who's probably run away because this is why Paul is sending him back. So he's still legally bound to Philemon as a slave that Paul is sending him back. And this person is my very heart. In other words, I have a friendship with this slave, Onesimus, now. He's a brother Christian. I've led him to the Lord. He's helped me in ministry. Now I'm sending him back to you. Verse 13, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. In other words, I don't have many people alongside me to help me. And I need people. I'm alone in this work. And, and you're not here. Other people aren't here. But this guy has been here. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not, would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. In other words, you're bringing him back as a Christian brother that you're able to see and treat differently. He's very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Verse 17. If you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, in other words, if he has stolen something as he left your house, stole bread, stole things that, that are now going to be accrued to him as a debt, um, you attribute that to me. If he owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. That's a strange thing when we see it in Scripture. But the ancient Near East was dominated by scribes, 
Um, it's believed by this point in Paul's life, his eyesight was really bad. A lot of his letters, especially the longer ones, were probably done by dictation, okay? And so when Paul gives a comment that I am writing this with my own hand, you imagine on a scroll that there is the writing of somebody and he's saying, look at my handwriting here. Look at the size of my letters. See that I'm writing this with my own hand. In other words, my heart in a personal letter, just like if we didn't send an email today, but we actually got the stationery out, we actually got a pen out, and we actually tried to write in our, 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 what used to be our penmanship, which for most of us doesn't exist anymore. Like We'd be like, see how awkward my all caps letters are and that you can barely read this. But somehow in this mess, I think you're getting or deriving that this is really coming from me. Not just coming from me, um, this biological unit, but it's coming from me like I took the time to do it by hand. This is really me. And Paul says, see, I'm writing this by my own hand and I will pay you back. In other words, contractually, I'll take care of whatever this guy owes, owes you. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Encourage me, Philemon. Do something here that's going to bless me. And I'm confident of your obedience as I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Do you see the grace language? I'm giving you room, Philemon. I'm giving you space to change or to grow up into or to act in a way that I'm really longing that you would act because it's the right thing to do. And one more thing. Now it gets a little personal. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. This is a, um, an interesting thing. You know, we can be in a conversation with somebody and we can use grace language like, hey, you know, like you should do the right thing. You should all this. Like, um, hey, I know you're going to do the right thing. And our mind be thinking, I don't really like that person. They probably don't really like me. I'm using or borrowing friend language, but I know that especially after I'm challenging them right now, we're probably not going to be hanging out and watching the Super Bowl together. You know what I'm saying? Paul leans in here and means it. He's saying, listen, hey, I really need to talk to you about this. Here's this huge thing that needs to be done. Please take me into consideration when you do this. If you can't do it for your slave, do it for me. But, but I know you're going to do even more than I'm asking, that you're going to bring about this beautiful state of affairs. Because like Mother Teresa said, we belong to each other, Philemon. And, and so I know you're going to do that. Oh, by the way, I'll be over for the Super Bowl. Do you see that? That little bit? Prepare a room. I'm, I'm anticipating that I'll get out of jail here in, in, in Rome, that somehow if I can make my case as a Roman citizen, I think I can gain my freedom, and I long to come back to you and to visit. So, hey, prepare a room for me, because you're on my radar. I want to come to your house, church. Paul says, daily I have in another place, daily I have a concern for all the churches and I want to come back through there and I want to spend that time with you. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. So two things this morning, having looked at that text. 
Um, last week I said the interesting thing is from the, from the perspective of Onesimus being asked, once you've kind of escaped, some people believe that Onesimus escaped to go find Paul, to, to use Paul as a mediator, that he would have met Paul when Paul came through, was in Philemon's house at the house church, but somewhere along the way that this slave would have, would have seen who Paul was and that he ran away to find Paul to seek mediation with his, his, his master. Um, that's not the dominant view, but you, you get this interesting idea that Onesimus has either randomly come, in, come into contact with Paul or has sought him out. And now Paul is sending him back and saying, what's more important that, than that you're running around behaving free is that you would actually be set free, that you wouldn't be hiding from somebody, but that you'd be able to live in the light that you wouldn't be in a, in a broken relationship from the other part of the church or that they would be in a broken relationship from you, but that the church would have whole and reconciled relationships. And so I'm sending you back Onesimus so that this thing can be made right. Now you've got to trust me. Onesimus, you've got to do this by faith as you go back. And so last week I said, you know, it's interesting, this book of the Bible that never gets taught, that gets forgotten as if it's not in the New Testament. This book almost exists for all of us that are going through some kind of a difficulty and ask the question, is this, is this taken into account at all in Scripture? <laughs> like, does my life experience register? Does my faith have any relevance to what I'm going through? Because this is a gnarly faith walk. And it puts me in a position where I'm not in control and other people are, and I don't know outcomes. God, do you see this? God, do you know this? Can I go to the scriptures and actually get encouragement or comfort? And I'm saying this little forgotten book speaks to us from the perspective of Onesimus in this faith-based kind of way that, yeah, I think a lot of times I'm in that spot. And I want to be able to feel like this isn't the first time in the history of Christianity that somebody's had to walk this walk or, or put themselves into, into other people's hands or trust that God was big enough that even if you're doing the right thing, the gospel thing, um, that you can trust God for the outcomes or to be there even if the outcomes don't go the way you think they ought to or other people think they should. And so that's the perspective of Onesimus. Here's the interesting thing about Paul this morning is that this grace move of Paul that we see later in his life, I think is a part of us getting to see Paul's maturity, his growth process. That Paul, who had lost face with one group, not really been accepted by another, had been hounded by his own people, the Christians, had been rejected by, that's a first, um, Um, it's actually not a spiritual sign. It's just my phone going off. Um, uh, I'm 44. I'm, uh, I'm beginning to grow up a little bit. My dad thought it would never happen. I think it started happening sometime about a year ago. Uh, so we're, we're well into this growth process now. Um, there's a, there's a grace that I think grows in us that I see happening here in Paul, that I see even in my own life, where 
you don't treat people or don't see people as disposable anymore. Meaning, you, you talk sharp, you talk prophetically. If they accept, then they're the good guys. If they reject what you say, then they're the bad guys. And then you move on. Um, if they're willing to live up to your expectations, they're useful, Mark. And then you move on because there's work to be done. But if they don't live up to your expectations or they're weak, you know, um, then you move on without them. And in some ways you're disappointed with them and, and you push them to the margin or, or they go to the margin. Um, if you've been hurt by somebody, they've gossiped about you or they've used you or they've showed that they can't be fully trusted, how easy is it to just put them fully in that category of the bad guy? Uh, and say, now I've got a wall up to protect myself from them, and I'm always going to angle to make sure that I'm safe from them and that I, I never let them grow in power because I know if they grow in power, somehow, some way, um, I'm going to lose in the end. Um, that's politics, right? It's human nature. Even in the church, you can see some of that wrangling that was happening with Jesus' disciples. I think Paul is showing us something different here that says, um, I'm going to trust people that they can grow. I'm going to not take people at face value where they currently are or they were the last time I came through that church. But in this moment, I'm going to talk to them and write to them in such a way that I believe in this moment they actually can become a different person or that they can grow up to a level that would, would be different in my mind than where I had them. That, that God still works with people, not just with me, but with us. And if I need people to give me grace that I can grow and that I can recognize and that I can say I'm sorry or I can ask forgiveness or I can be humbled or that things will change me, if I'm gonna ask for that grace from you or from God, then I have to be willing to extend that to other people and say, you know what? I know this person has proven to me 10 times over that they're not trustworthy. But if Jesus says, forgive 70 times seven, then on the 11th time, don't call me a fool if I'm willing to trust them once more. Don't call me a fool if I'm willing to believe that my God is big enough this time that they might actually become different and how they deal with me or deal with the Christian community, or that even if they don't ever change the way they deal with me, to believe and to know and to understand that the way they are dealing with other people in their life might actually be growing. And so that if I act out of the way they're treating me, eventually at some point I might be harming somebody that is actually being very effective in ministry to a set of people that I might not even know or experience. Um, I'm tired of writing people off. I think Paul got to the point where he was the apostle to the churches. And he gave room for Philemon to do the right thing 
um, without prejudging what Philemon was going to do or to act in such a way that Philemon already knew that if he didn't do what Paul asked, somehow Paul was going to write him off or cut off fellowship. I have to believe that if Philemon doesn't take Paul's advice, Paul's still going to show up in that guest room and that they're going to talk about it again. That's, that's the grace part of how we mature into the faith, isn't it? Does that make sense? There are no disposable people. There are no people that we write off. There are no people that are, that are beyond the grace that we found in Christ, which is why Jesus says you always forgive those people because if you can't forgive them, if you can't love your enemy, if you can't pray for your enemy, if you can't continue to right their wrongs, how are you going to bring them closer to you? And how are they going to really be ever brought into the community, the Christian community, the community of grace, if you don't continue to reach out and try to bring them closer to you? If you curse your enemies, how in the world are they ever going to become friends? Praying for our enemies is another way of saying that we're praying for what we hope to be future friends. Right? We have to see the end result of what we're actually doing and thinking about theologically. What did Kristen say about the, the, the gospel? That it changes everything. Why do you pray for your enemies? Because you're praying for them because you believe that it can change. And you're not doing it in a judgmental way. You're doing it in the way that Paul, we should be doing it in a way that Paul talks to Philemon. Man, I know. I know you can do this. I want to appeal to your love. I want to appeal to your grace, to your better nature. I want to give you opportunity. And irregardless isn't a word. It's regardless. Um, It's been hard for me writing books because I actually didn't pay attention at all. Um, I was going to say in English, but um, school is what I, is the real answer um, at all. Uh, it's a, it's a, I am a trophy of God's grace. Um, so let's, uh, let's switch here real quick. Do you guys get the point there? It's the way we approach others that we don't see them as fixed realities. We see God hanging all around them. And our treatment of this person is really coming out of the, the conspiracy of joy that we're having with the Holy Spirit about how us in concert can totally radically flip this person upside down without them even knowing it. We conspire with the Holy Spirit to change the people that suck. And they don't even know it, but we don't write them off. Um, I've written off too many people, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm in a long process of trying to go back and find all my marks. Um, John Marks, not, not my marks as in I marked people or whatever, but all my marks and my Philemon's and my Titus's. Um, that's a lot of work. And if you're smarter than me and you start growing at like maybe 35 instead of 43 or whatever, it'll save you a lot of time to keep people in your grace um, rather than let them slip out of your grace. Uh, How does Philemon take this letter? 
I'm not gonna camp on this long because it's completely suppositional. We don't know how Philemon took this letter. I wonder if, because Philemon has a lot of power, it's his house, he's the prominent person, he, he owns slaves, that, that one day he's the guy that's being the host, the hospitable person, the guy that's get, getting the last word at the small group meetings and interpreting scripture and like, like, you know, he's enjoying that status and then the next day a letter comes that makes him look a bit awkward. That everybody kind of gets to read the letter that kind of puts, puts Philemon in the hot seat. And now he doesn't get to just free his slave because he's just a good guy. He's doing it because Paul's kind of put him in an awkward spot. And I kind of wonder if, if on a human level, Philemon didn't wrestle with that a little bit. The awkwardness of being called out by other Christians. See, here's the second part that I don't have a lot of time to develop, but uh, to be a Christian means we're going to be on the receiving end of other people's criticisms or their ideas about how we should be living our Christian life. And I think a lot of times it's going to hit us a bit awkward and, and make us feel pretty uncomfortable. And sometimes it might even put us in a spot where we're like, dang it, I'm going to look really awkward in this situation. Like I don't look like a leader here when I'm just doing what someone else said in response to their criticism. I'm talking about Paul sending this letter in grace. Philemon might have not heard it that way. He might not have felt the grace. He might have felt um, the control or the pressure. And so there's this interesting thing on the flip side of how are we going to act in such a way that saving face isn't what our dominant idea of Christianity is, that losing face and celebrating unity is desirable enough to us that we can move past the slights, the awkward words, the wrongly timed or wrongly worded criticism. Um, how about this one? The criticism that comes from the Christian brother or sister without any words of affirmation that would re-communicate or establish the fact that this is coming from a friend. You know, we make this constructive versus, um, what's the other one? Is it just criticism and then constructive criticism? Or it's unconstructive and then constructive? Like, I don't know, we, we parse out the criticisms, right? And then go, but this is a good one. And what I'm saying is what happens as we are trying to grow up in Christ and, and constructive criticism still has to come from a place that we, we trust as ultimately having our best interest at heart. And we don't always establish the safety of relationship or the affirmation of brotherhood or sisterhood before we like to give in our words, right? There's a real interesting thing happening with social media that, that there used to be a discipline that you'd go to college for. It was called journalism. And they taught you about sources, and they taught you about ethics, uh, and they taught you about how to craft a story, and they taught you about a lot of things. Now all of us, at any moment, can publish 
to the world. That's called journalism. We all have become really bad journalists. With no ethical training, no understanding of sources or fallacies or whatever. And, and that whole process of, and, and we're also propagandists half the time. Um, you know, how many times do we take the picture of look at my new haircut or, or, or look at me? I, I at least took 10 pictures before I posted one from Bite of Bend last night. And my, my oldest daughter, who's really intuitive and sees through all this stuff, it's really hard for her to even smile when she's like, ah, I'm being used in some kind of propaganda effort. Um, like she knows, she knows what Instagram is. There's no just, oh, this is just fun for me, Mary Jo. You know what I mean? Like she knows. Um, but we're shaped by that. Are we shaped by love first? I love you first. I'm on your team first. I hear you first. I asked questions first. I checked my assumptions first. I, I tried to, to understand your perspective, oh, which allows me to nuance my perspective. Philemon got put in uh, that position of, that we're all put in of, wow, this came out of nowhere, didn't see this letter coming, how am I going to respond to it? And no matter how it comes, grace means that we respond as if that had come through Christ. That Christ is able to bear that with us. Blessed is he who bears up under unjust criticism. Jesus, who, who told us about turning the other cheek, the first thing that happened to his cheek was the kiss of a friend. The second thing that happened to his cheek was the blows of the spiritual leaders in his faith community long before it got to the Romans. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's saying, brothers and sisters, we together have to turn the other cheek. Because if the grace isn't gonna come in the sayer, then the grace has to be there in the receiver if we're gonna keep this thing going. So Paul, with grace, but we can't always depend on Paul so we bear the responsibility to have the grace and the maturity also in the receiving end. Um, I'm going to do this quickly because we're out of time. Paul, or Paul, Pete, the Apostle Pete. Um, Pete Kelly put me on to a, a really fascinating podcast this week that was one of these interesting, it wasn't Malcolm Gladwell, but you know those kind of interesting podcasts. And it was about the Brazilian soccer jersey. Um, so I think we've got a picture um, that's Pele, that's the Brazilian soccer jersey. The story goes, back in the 50s, they, they had lousy jerseys. Brazil's a proud country, a big country. They lost a really heartbreaking game, and people started saying it's because our jerseys don't have any of the color of our national flag. They're, they're, they're a bad jersey. Uh, a newspaperman started a competition with thousands of people that, that put in designs, and an 18-year-old newspaper illustrator came up with this jersey that has all four colors of the, the national flag. The green is for all the fields, or not the fields, the forests in Brazil. The yellow is for the riches, the gold that, that is in the soil of that country. The blue is for the blue sky. The white is for something I can't remember. And those four colors that are a part of that national flag ended up in this jersey. 
It has been such a mainstay with a team that has changed in many respects the game of soccer or football from Pele onward that that team plays it with reckless abandon, representing a massive country and does it with a joy that is typical of what you would think of of, of Brazil. Um, The dancing and the music and the festival atmosphere and that joy translates into the way this team has historically played. And the interesting thing about this jersey is that what they basically are arguing in this podcast and there's uh, BBC articles that say the same thing, you can find it in a lot of places, is that this jersey transcends everything in Brazilian society. It transcends race. It transcends gender, it transcends class, rich to poor, across different um, business sectors or career tracks, that all of Brazil is one when they see this jersey, when they wear this jersey, when they talk to others on the street about this jersey, that they are united. Um, And the idea is, that's a lot like um, taking the name of Christ. That I could see Philemon getting this letter from Paul, and in that moment going, you know, Apollos is pretty cool. <laughs> I, think, I think we're going to start bending that direction. Go to that church. Subscribe to that leader. Um, it's easy for us to divide. Henry Nouwen said this. Listen, one of the main tasks of theology, leave that jersey up because it's a cool picture, Uh, One of the main tasks of theology is to find words that do not divide but unite, that do not create conflict but unity, that do not hurt but heal. And it is so easy for us to find ourselves wearing different jerseys or to react to, to the jersey that someone's wearing. It's interesting. It's not Paul or Apollos, but it's Christ. We've been given one name by which to be called, that unites us all that we're into that body. I, um, someone asked me recently, like, are you still really into Antioch? Because I don't know that I see you like that that competitive Antioch thing again. It was really interesting to me. Um, Connor's back there. So of all the people outside my wife, he could probably validate this. When I started Antioch, I I was very competitive. I was very competitive. I thought a lot about product differentiation. I thought a lot about the startup aspect of this. I thought a lot about why the worship at that church across town or the leader at that church across town were actually bad or things I could, I could project in a certain way that we could do it different than which has energy and excitement to it and that we could gather people around that because we could tell them why this is better than that. (laughs) Right, Connor? Um, Traveling around, growing older, beginning to realize the interesting things about the African-American church or say a Latino church in Arizona or L.A., that on certain issues, they don't ever get to turn it off. We might talk about difficult subjects, but then we kind of get fragile, right? We're like, okay, now we're moving to a different series and gonna give ourselves a little breather, right? Like we can turn certain things off 
this community can. And other communities, they live weekly with that same topic. They, they're talking about marriage in the shadow of immigration. They're talking about jobs in the shadow of immigration. They're talking about parenting in the shadow of immigration. And there's a, a, a unique difference and even crazy weakness about us being able to just, man, when it gets a little too tough, we can just, we can take a break for a while. Like just set that to the side for a while. And I've realized um, I want to wear one jersey. I want to care about all the churches in this town. I want to care about the churches in, in Phoenix too. I want to I not product differentiate this church. I want to love you. Tamara and I are spending more time relationally with people in this church than we ever have. So when someone says, are you still really in Antioch? It's crazy to me because I think what they're doing is seeing the old Ken and actually saying there was at least things that we knew to be true about you then because you flew a jersey that I don't know that I'm flying anymore. But what I can tell you is that whether I'm on the giving or the receiving end, um, I'm trying really hard to make it grace. That we together would be learning grace and that that doesn't stop at the edges of this, this particular congregation, but that my grace would go far enough to encompass Westside and New Hope and Journey. And I could have thrown some jokes in there, but it, it would have showed you my immaturity, and so I won't. <laughs> And that I really am learning from the Micah Bornays who were here last week where Philando Castile was a Friday thing for me and then not a Saturday or a Sunday thing. And I kind of wanted us to move a different direction. That was my agenda. It was like, hey, we did a lot in this conversation for a good while. It's time to take a breather from that. What I had to learn through Micah was that for Micah, Philando Castile and those of you that hung around for Redux and that he'd had a very similar experience that shaped it. By the way, Micah has a brother who's a police officer. So we're not talking about either ors here. We're talking about the experience of brothers and sisters in realizing that for him, when he came in last Sunday, he couldn't just set that on the side and do poetry for us. And we shouldn't ask him to. It's grace. There are no expendable or disposable people that if we're going to stay under one flag, we do it as we listen and as we hear as well. That somehow we can't just keep maneuvering through and putting people to the edges, but it's us that we have to work with. This is the people that God gave us to hammer out spiritual community with. And if we can't figure it out with us, then what makes us think we're going to figure it out over there? or over there, or over there. You, you hearing me at all? So we're doing baptism today, which is a, a one of the church sacraments. This uh, communion, another one. Bread and wine representing Jesus' death that forgives our sins and our weaknesses and allows us to have the grace to continue on and to live out this hard Jesus kind of life, right? 
Baptism is another one. Baptism is what takes us in an awkward way in front of other people where we show that we're not uh, caring about saving face and we die to the old self and we rise to the new self and we are now in Christ, it says. We have the jersey. Baptism is that initiation, right? And we didn't do a good job of getting it out maybe early enough, but we're doing it today at the park. And if you haven't yet decided to get baptized or haven't been baptized, after this service, we're going to have a brief little meeting down here. I'm calling you to join me in the Jersey of Grace under one name where we get to be one church, a family that spends time and loves each other. I'm, I'm asking you, I don't know who you are, because I, I just don't know who you are because you're all out there. But if you haven't been baptized, come find us afterwards. That's not a commitment to do it. You can even just ask questions. But let us celebrate you proclaiming fully your desire to be named by the name of Jesus Christ in his name alone. Does that make sense? I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion. You don't have to. What we do is a teaching time about revelation. We do a responsive time. And that responsive time can be you praying right there where you're sitting. It can be you worshiping with the team. It can be you going and getting prayer by those that pray for people in the back. Or it can be you coming forward and living into that symbolism of this reminds me of what Jesus did to purchase grace. Not only saving grace, but sustaining grace as well. So that's the idea. We respond into the truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, we commit this morning to you. We commit this church to you. We commit tonight to you. We commit the worship we're gonna give to you right now. Refine it. We commit the prayers that we need. Teach us the right words. We commit this, this time of partaking in symbolism. Let it be more than just ritual. And we commit baptism to you. Let us be excited enough about your family that we could proclaim and shout and wear proudly a jersey that marks us as being part of the body of Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.